0: Is fine. Hey, good morning everybody. It's good to see all of you. I hope you appreciate the fantastic scene change that we have for Sunday. Uh, we're in Australia. Yeah, for VBS. That's right. So we're in Sydney, apparently, because the opera house is, I feel like I'm Godzilla. Uh, <laughs> it, it is to scale. Um, what is this, an opera house for ants? Um, if you have a Bible Uh, We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, but the first place I want you to turn is Hebrews chapter 1. So you may want to just find 1 Thessalonians 2, put your finger there, and then flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. It's just a couple of pages after. It's good to see you. I am so thankful that you got to spend some time last week with Will Roberts, who is not me at all. Um, But I love Will dearly and got to listen to his sermon. He did a fantastic job talking to you about the boldness of your witness and just a clear, clear gospel presentation, really thankful for him. And that really sets us up for this morning as we continue in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. This morning, though, my hope for you and me is that we would try to get a proper understanding of the word of God. And when we do that, we'll see how our understanding might shape the way we live day by day. So we need to recognize, though, that there's some confusion when I say those words, the Word of God. So just by a show of hands, when, when you hear the Word of God, how many of you automatically think about the Bible? Anybody? Okay. Good. Great. I'm encouraged by that. Now, how many of you think about Jesus, the Son of God, who is the Word made flesh? Okay. Some more hands. And does anybody think when they hear the word of God, do they think about the message that the apostles and that Jesus preached, the gospel message that brings us into right relationship with God? Anybody want to raise their hands for that one? All right. That's probably the minority report and that's fine. Well, in the Bible, all three of those things are referenced as the word of God. And so there's some confusion when we just say those words, because we don't automatically know what we might be talking about. So this is why I want us to go to Hebrews chapter 1. So let's read. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1, just the first three verses. It says, Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's just stop there. So the writer of Hebrews is telling you and me that God speaks... He speaks a word, and if God speaks a word, then that word is the word of God, right? So he speaks a word, and he's spoken to our fathers by the prophets. In other words, when you and I think about the Old Testament, when we think about the Hebrew scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, we have this collection of works that is the word of God. God has spoken to us through these prophets, But in the last days, verse 2, he has spoken to us by his son. So the definitive word of God, the ultimate supreme revelation of God through this speech, through this word, through this revelation is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. But notice what this Jesus has done. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the heir of all things. He created the whole world. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of majesty. That same word accomplished something for you and for me. That same word now brings a gospel message, good news for you and me, that if we believe in him and in his work, we might be saved. Here's the point. The word of God, the Bible, contains a message, the word of God, the gospel, that is all about the word of God, the Son. The point is that when we rightly understand the Bible, we receive the Son of God and the message that he brings So we can't really untangle this cord very easily, can we? When I say, do you believe in the word of God? Well, you can understand me to say all three of those things at once. I can't believe the gospel without believing in Jesus. I can't believe in Jesus without believing in the word that his father gave to us. And so all of these things culminate into the word of God. So the title of the message this morning is The Word of God. Does the work. The word does the work. Now we can jump back to First Thessalonians where the big idea for us this morning is that right there. The word does the work. Knowing the word, following it will lead us into a life that pleases God. And denying it, becoming callous to it, resisting that word will lead to judgment. So let's jump in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13 and work through verse 16. So join me. Let's read this. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. has come upon them at last. Let's pray before we go any further, and then we'll dive into these verses. Oh God in heaven, we are grateful that we get to gather together this morning as your people to hear from your word and to see with more clarity the word made flesh. Lord, I pray for our time together that you would give me clarity of thought, that you would help me to teach these scriptures with power and with authority and with Uh, the leadership of the Spirit of God, that you would give each one of these students and leaders ears to hear and hearts that can be molded by your Word. God, we thank you that you are the one who does the work, that your Spirit uses the Word to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray that you would do that among us this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So four verses, we're going to dive in and see how receiving the word helps us to be the church. That's going to be kind of the, the good news of this passage, but then also see the opposite. What happens if we don't receive the word? What happens if we resist the message of the gospel? What happens if we turn away from the son? And we'll see that there is bad, bad news for all those who would follow that path. So first, if you're taking notes, let's look at receiving the word of God in verse 13. This is a striking verse of scripture, right? Let's just read it one more time. He says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul's saying here that he's Thanking God constantly whenever he remembers the Thessalonians' response to his preaching. Paul and the others you remember came to Thessalonica preaching Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and as the Savior of the world. And their response was, this is no ordinary message and they're not talking about an ordinary man. Something special is happening here. Something amazing is happening here. The word of God is coming to us. So last week, Will did an amazing job at presenting the message of the gospel. We were in our sin, condemned, and God sent his son to take our place, our shame, our sin, our penalty. And now the hope of salvation is offered to all who would come. And we say, amen to that. So if you don't know Christ, if you don't know the word of God who came, became flesh and dwelled among his people, you can know him. You hear the message of the gospel and you receive it. You turn from your sin, repent, and believe in the gospel. You can be saved. That's the offer that was given to the Thessalonians of the same offer that you and I receive today. And we find that message to be about a person. Right, So that message is, it's about a lot of things, but it's supremely about the Savior. It's about Jesus. And like I said at the beginning, we need a solid understanding of the Bible and what the Bible is really talking about if we're to follow it rightly and if we're to follow the God who gave it rightly. So what we need is we think about the reception of the Thessalonians when they receive the word of God. What are some things about that word that we need to know? So I'm going to give you just a handful of words. Uh, I would love for you to like write these down and know them. These are words that uh, Christians have confessed about the scriptures for millennia. So number one, I'm going to give you six words, okay? Number one, the Bible, scripture, the word of God is necessary. The Bible is necessary. You and I need this book. We need it. It's not optional. It's not, oh, when I get around to it, I'll read some of it. It is necessary, right? Now we know, when we think about necessary, sometimes we think about things that are not necessary, right? So you think like, well, my house is necessary. Hmm. I'm not so much thinking about like house as I am like air. You know what I mean? Like you could find a couch to sleep on. You could find somebody who would give you some food. Like you can survive if you don't have a house, You need oxygen, or it's going to be over pretty quick. And in our minds, we need to think about the scriptures as that kind of necessary. If I don't have this, I don't have life. It's necessary. The message of the gospel is found in this book, and apart from that message, we are hopeless. We cannot find salvation in Christ apart from his revelation to us In this book. So when you heard the gospel, someone was telling you the gospel that they received from this book. It's necessary. We need it. Number two, scripture, the Bible, is sufficient. It's sufficient. It is all that we need. So it's necessary. We need it, but it's sufficient. It's all that we need for life and godliness. So when we read the pages of scripture, we have all that we need to know and love and obey and honor Jesus. Now, that does not mean that the Bible is going to answer every question that you come up with, right? So all of us have been in conversations where it's like, so like, did Adam have a belly button? It's like, well, if you know, like, what do we do with the dinosaurs? Okay, like the Bible's not super concerned about questions like that. It's more concerned about what are you going to do with your soul? And apart from Christ, what is going to be your destiny? And if you believe the gospel, what is going to be your hope? Are these things that we need for life and godliness? Scripture is sufficient. It's not going to answer every question that we come up with, but it does mean that we don't need another revelation. And that's important for you and for me, because you are going to go to school in the fall, and you're going to hang out with friends this summer who may not be Christians and whether it's another religion entirely or it's a pseudo-Christian religion like Mormonism, they're gonna say something like, well, your, your, your book is, is good or, or fine or whatever, but we have this other revelation. We have this other document. We have this other word. And so your Bible is not sufficient. It's not all that we need. And we need to be convinced that scripture is sufficient. We don't need another revelation. We've been given all that we need in the Bible. Third, Scripture, the Word of God, is authoritative. It's authoritative. It is the Word of God, which means it carries His authority. When Scripture speaks, we listen. When it commands, we obey. When it forbids, we avoid. There are plenty of authorities in our life given to us by God. Your parents, for example, which, spoiler alert, it's Father's Day. Hopefully you've said that. There's still still time if you haven't told your dad, happy Father's Day, Um, sooner rather than later, right? But these are authorities in your life. God has put those authorities in your life. So so perhaps, maybe you've heard this before, uh, because I know I did for my parents. They ask you to do something, and you, the genius of the universe, comes up with this killer question, right? Why? Why? You're like, son, take out the trash. Why? Now, they could try to reason with you and your not fully formed brain, or they could say what my father and mother had said to me all throughout childhood, which is what? Because I said so. Like, I'm your dad. Like, I don't have to give you a defense for why you need to take out the trash. I said it right? And you're like, that's not a good reason. Actually, it is. It is because they're an authority over you. And God has put them in that position for a purpose to raise you up, to know and love Christ, to, to grow in maturity as a young man or as a young woman. And they don't need to defend their authority to someone who's under their authority. So when they say, because I said so, that's not a cop-out. It's, it's something that you and I need to work in to recognize there are good authorities in my life and it's a good thing to obey them. Now, if your parents were like, hey, uh, go slash that man's tires, like that would not be a good use of authority, right? So we don't follow authorities into sin, but we do obey the authorities that God has put in our lives. And the supreme authority, the ultimate authority in this life for us is God's word. It is supreme in its authority over us. So scripture is authoritative. Fourth, scripture is inerrant. Inerrant. I-N-E-R-R-A-N-T. That's a really important word. Scripture is inerrant. And all it means is it does not contain error. The scriptures do not present falsehood as truth. Now, that's really important because that means that you and I can trust what the scriptures say. I had a a friend that I had made an acquaintance with when I was in college. He was a Mormon missionary. And they believe, Mormons believe, that the scriptures, our Bible, the Old New Testament, contains errors. That for whatever reason, they can give you a lot of reasons why they think it contains errors, but it contains errors. And I just said to this friend, I said, well, hey, man, can you show me where they are? And he was like, no, we don't know where the errors are. I'm like, that's problematic. I said, so, so if I said to you, but, but, but it's still the word of God, it's still the Bible, it's still trustworthy, it's still something that we need to honor as God's word, it just contains errors and we need to be careful. And I said, well, okay, riddle me this. If, I said, what's your favorite drink? Like, what's your favorite drink in, in all the world? And uh, he was like, I like I to drink tea. I was like, awesome, okay. So what if I said, listen, I've got the best tea that has ever been made on the planet. Like, you will never have better tea than this. I don't know, it's straight from the mountains of the Himalayas. Like, something amazing, right? Like, you'll never get this again. You know, incomparable experience. Do you want to drink some of this tea? He's like, absolutely. I said, well, here's the deal. It's, you know, it's a big cup of tea. I've put a drop of arsenic in it, which is poison, by the way, if you don't know what that is. I put, a, I, put a drop of, I put a drop of arsenic in it, and, but here's the deal. I mean, there's a lot of tea and just a little bit of arsenic. So, so do you still want the tea? And he's like, absolutely not. And I was like, why? I was like, chances are you're going to take a sip and not get any of the arsenic. And he's like, well, I don't know that I'm not going to get any of that arsenic. And so because there's a little bit of poison in there, I don't want any of it at all. And I said, yeah, that's right. And so if you think there are errors in this book, but you can't tell me where they are, then I can't trust any of it. Because if one thing is messed up in this book, if there's one error in this book that leads me astray from the truth, then I can't trust that any of the claims in this book are true. And so we believe wholeheartedly that the scriptures are without error. They are without error. We can trust all that it says. All right, we got to move on. Fifth, Scripture is clear. It's clear. It's clear. That does not mean easy, does it? <laughs> scripture is not easy. It's not that you just like sit down and read it. And you're like, I understand everything Paul ever meant in 20 minutes. You're like, no, that's not how that works. Uh, scripture is sometimes very difficult to understand, but it's not unclear. There are plenty of things that are hard to understand in scripture, but scripture doesn't have to be decoded. It's not like I need like special glasses to look at the Bible and, and only the real important words stick out. Its meaning is not hidden from us. It's right there for us to see. So you read the gospels and it's clear, this man, Jesus is the Son of God, and He died on a cross for sinners like me. And if I believe in Him and turn from my sins, I can have eternal life. And all the letters after the Gospels are affirming that, and all of the writings of the Old Testament are pointing forward to that. It is clear. It's not hidden. It's not like, how in the world did you come up with that? Well, it's because it's clear. So we believe that Scripture is clear. And finally, number six, Scripture, the Word of God, is transformative. It's transformative. The Bible changes us. So when we read the Bible, you can be sure that in a real sense, the Bible is reading you. When you read the Bible, the Bible is reading you. Because the Spirit of God is going to work by the Word to to transform you. to to reveal sin in your life, to encourage your heart when it's discouraged, to, to lead you when you don't know where to go, to guide you when you feel like falling away, to expose erroneous thinking when you have false beliefs and on and on we can go. The word does the work. And if we regularly sit under the word of God through the preaching of the word here at Lakeview, through the regular reading of the word individually, or you as a family, or you in a small group, we will not stay the same. The Bible is so, so rich. But we have to be clear on what it is if we're going to be receiving it like the Thessalonians. If we're going to receive this word as the word of God, we need to elevate our understanding of what it even is. So the Bible is necessary, it's sufficient, it's authoritative, it's clear, it's inerrant, it's transformative. There are more things we could say, but we have to move on. The Spirit uses that reception of the Word, though, to bring people together as the body of Christ, which brings us to the second point. That's the longest one. We're going to move fast from here on out. So we have to think about being the church of Christ. Being the church of Christ. We find this in verse 14. The power of that Word is what transforms us into followers of Jesus. So we hear the message of the Word of God and we believe it. But it doesn't leave us alone. So when you become a Christian, you don't become a Christian on an island. No, it unites you with Jesus and with others around you. So Paul, in verse 14, reminds us that there's a real tension in that day between Jews and Gentiles, between those who were uh, ethnic followers of the Lord God and those who were not. And that tension was palpable. Everyone saw it. Everyone knew it existed. And for these Gentile believers, it probably felt like being a second-class Christian when compared to the Jews who believed out of the promises that they had been given. But Paul here encourages them and us that in the church of Christ, there are no second-class Christians. Paul's example about how they became imitators of the churches in Judea through suffering is an encouragement to them. And it should be an encouragement to us that the church of Jesus is a body of believers that suffers together. So in our day, as you heard from Will last week, we experience suffering both small and great on a regular basis. You're gonna be challenged at your school. You're gonna be challenged probably even in your friend groups. You're gonna be challenged perhaps even in your homes. And I am convinced that for your generation, perhaps more than any other in the history of our country, it costs you something to be a follower of Jesus. Like more so than the generations before us, it costs you something that that other generations did not have to think about in order to be a faithful follower of Christ. It's going to cost you friendships. It's going to cost you spots on teams. It's going to cost you admission into clubs and on and on we could go. These things and more might be threatened By your stand on the word of God. And that's hard. But here's the good news. The gospel is not just a message of salvation. It is a message of salvation. But believing the gospel is also what one writer calls a community creating event. So when you believe the gospel, a community is created. So we now come together to bear one another's burdens. We come together to encourage one another. We come together to share in our sufferings. So so listen to me here. At Lakeview, in general, and in the youth ministry in particular, there is no room for Jew-Gentile divides. There's no room for rivalries. There's no room for factions. Let me translate that into uh, a modern-day example. There's no room for a divide based on school choice. So you go to public school, you go to private school, you go to homeschool. Cool. Cool. There's no room for that to be a a mark of division. it's, It's impossible for the body of Christ to say, well, I'm an arm and I can't stand that leg. It doesn't make any sense. So those things in our lives that the world might say are causes for division and factions must not be so among us because we're a church who gathers together as the people of God to share in our sufferings, not to cause them. We're united in Christ, and so we're united to each other. And the word's power binds us together, but it also has a hardening effect on those who hate the truth. So for us, we receive the word of God, we're brought together as the church of Christ, but there are others around us who do not receive the word. They reject it. They resist it. And that's where we'll land today, our third point. We need to hear Paul's warning. So third thing is warning the hard-hearted. We see this in verses 15 and 16. We are surrounded by people, day in and day out, who are hard-hearted. Their hearts are like stone. They're impenetrable to our attempts to reason or encourage or to exhort. And here in the text, in verse 15 and 16, these people who caused the suffering of the church did four things. First, they killed God's messengers and even the Lord Jesus himself. You see that in verse 15. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. So, so the point is, those who are hard-hearted hate the truth. And Jesus says, if you, you know, I say to you that you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I tell you, if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. So, so how do I know that hard-hearted people haven't changed? Because the ones who killed Jesus, the one who killed the prophets, they hated the truth. And it's the same today. Second, they drove out the faithful. Paul says they drove us out. Perhaps you've been booted from a friend group before. A place that once tolerated you doesn't anymore. Well, that's not new. That's been happening since the birth of the church, that those who love God are driven out by their faithfulness. Third, Paul says they displease God. They displease God. Their lives are an affront to the holiness of God. They mock him with their actions. They mock him with their thoughts. They mock him with their words. And fourth, they oppose all mankind by hindering the spread of the gospel. They refuse to let others hear what they hate. Now, all of us can probably think of people in our lives or people in the world that that we can kind of lay these ideas on top of and say, yes, I know people like that. I know people who anytime I try to have a spiritual conversation with them, they just shut it down. I know people who if I try to say something uh, faithful to the word of God or say something that seeks to honor Jesus, they, they cut it down or they mock it. All of us know people like this. And Paul says the measure of their sins is being filled up. Wrath is coming for them. And here's the deal. All of us were hard hearted every one of us in this room was hard-hearted. We were lost. We hated the truth. And if we're not careful, we'll start to believe this idea that life in the world as a follower of Christ is life with us versus them. And we'll start to think about those people who are hard-hearted as the enemy. But Paul says in another letter, we don't wage war against flesh and blood. That's that's not the enemy. So so one, one, one author said that the gospel is like one beggar saying to another beggar that he knows where to find bread. Like all of us are destitute. All of us are hopeless. All of us are needy. Those who have the gospel simply know where to go to find life. We're not better than them. We're not smarter than them. We were hard-hearted. We were blind. We were deaf. We saw but didn't see. So I say this to you to encourage you that when you continue to walk in faithfulness around those who are hard-hearted, you are not doing so in vain. It's not going to be your action that opens their eyes, but it might be the Spirit of God through your action, that does so. The same way that he did for you. The word is able to do what we cannot. The word can melt the heart of stone. So while sinners around us continue to resist the gospel, don't give up. Don't miss the fact that God is at work using his word to accomplish something glorious. He did it with all of us. All of us who claim to follow Jesus, that's, that's our story. He can do it for anybody. So we, we receive the word as the, as the Thessalonians did, as the word of God, believing that the word can do the work. Let me pray for us. We'll spend some time discussing this in our groups.